hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one award-seeking comedy podcast about comedy. Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Mark Hershaw. Howdy do! It's me, Mark Hershon, your host and evangelist for Epi 108 of Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. Thanks a lot for downloading or streaming our show. I wonder if you might do us a favor. Whatever source you're accessing this episode from, it would be great if you could use their rating system to give us a nice rating, or review, or both. If it's iTunes, for instance, you can rate and review us. That helps our visibility there tremendously, especially considering there are only about mm, 100,000 or more comedy podcasts out there, literally. If you're streaming us from Stitcher, you can give us the old thumbs up. SoundCloud, you can like us with a heart click. If you're listening through our Facebook page, go ahead, like us and share us. You get the idea. It's your way of passing the succotash so everyone gets some. Thanks. This particular episode is an edition of Succotash Chats, which means we have precious little in the way of comedy podcast clips. Uh, I mean, okay, I'm not going to lie to you. There's a bit of clippage coming up, but we're mostly looking at a thick and meaty interview headed your way with none other than David Feldman, writer, comedian, and host of The David Feldman Show. I, I, occasionally, somebody is foolish enough to ask me for advice on stand-up comedy. And like, how do you make it? I said, well, if you think I've made it, <laughs> you've really set your sights pretty remarkably low. There's a taste, a smidgen, if you will, of David Feldman. We put the interview in the can a couple of weeks ago via Skype, as David has been habitating in New York City while he works on the Triumph and Jack show for Adult Swim. You'll have the whole chat up in just a little while, but we've still got some other bits of show to share with you. For instance, before we get to our interview with David Feldman, We've got a boozing with Bill segment in which our announcer, Bill Haywatt, mixes up a new libation with me at the Studio P Wet Bar. We also have a double dose of our Burst O Durst with political comedian and social commentarian, Will Durst. There's a classic Henderson's Pants commercial, and we'll dip into the tweet sack to sniff your cards and letters, emails, and tweets. If you'd like to hear me get interviewed, along with our esteemed booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, listen no further than episode eight of the Blank Planet podcast. It's hosted by our pal Davian Dent over in the UK. And since it's got me on it, I figure I can play a clip, even though this is officially a Succotash Chats episode. <laughs> now, our friend here, uh, Matt Bubbles, he's wanting to get into a bit of the um, uh, voice recording announcing work and um, um, generally anything where he can use his mouth. Um, so, um, so what sort of um, advice would you give, Bill? Well, you know, there's the wine cork trick. I always have a wine cork here. And I find it uh, somewhere. He's rummaging through the drawers of Studio P at the moment. Right. Well... You know, it helps you on your elocution where you put the wine cork between your teeth and you say it like, like you have a... Well, you take the wine cork and you bite down on it and you stick your tongue up against it and you try to articulate the words. And then you take it out and you say, Buenos Aires is a city of 48 barrios, and San Telmo is the oldest of them all. And it helps you wrap your words around. It's like do, giving your tongue calisthenics. 
And I, oh, I think yeah, that yeah. anyone who wants to get into the voice business should get a wine cork and, and practice tongue calisthenics. That would or be, if they want to keep their marriage. Yeah, well, yeah, that would yeah. be very useful for me because um, when it comes to enunciation and stuff and uh, other things, um, I'll do a terrible trouble with my arse. How about you, Matt? Uh, I'm in trouble with your ass? Ass. Ass. Is that what he said? His ass. No, his ass. His ass. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, that. I have trouble with tons in my ass too, Dave. So, uh, okay. well, I think that you know Americans love the British voice because whatever you say, it always sounds so elocutioned. El- yes, like you really are. You know, like you're smarter than <coughs> us, and yeah. of course, you know you are. Greater sense of history. So I think that he would do fine here. He would, just, he would clean up. He would take my work away. Oh, well, we wouldn't want that. I'll tell you what, then, Matt. Why don't you try a quick line like, um, hello, and this is Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. That's <coughs> 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 just taking my fucking job. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll try with something that's wine cork shaped, first of all. Um, oh, I didn't know you were double jointed. <laughs> hello. <laughs> hello, it's Suckatash. <laughs> That's a good start. Yeah. Now, now you take the wine cork out, you'll be able to shave three tenths of a second off of that reed. It's great. Hello, this is the Succotash Comedy Podcast. Oh, that- oh, That's great. Yes. Now you gotta understand. You know, you gotta be like you're talking to someone. You know, like me, I'm always talking to someone. It must be very personal and real. And 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 you got to speak from the heart. I remember, who was that man we used to work with at, at KSFO, Ron Bermuda? Oh yes, he always said that being on the air for him was his way of saying I love you, and and I think that 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 was something that stayed with me. He was always saying I love you, and and all the women listeners, all their husbands would stand in the parking lot to beat him up afterwards. <laughs> But you have to communicate. You have to communicate. I I think that should count as part of Succotash chats. I mean, I was chatting. Bill was chatting. So was Matt Bubbles. He was chatting with Davey and Dent, too. All from England. All hanging out. And the four of us had a smashing good time. You can get that whole episode up at their home site, theblankplanet.com. All right, let's get to the first burst of Durst for this show, wherein Will Durst is taking Indiana's so-called Religious Freedom Act to task. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words concerning Indiana Governor Mike Pence signing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which some folks claim was written to allow Christians to discriminate against homosexuals and could be chock full of unintended repercussions. Ostensibly, Quakers would be able to refuse to sell furniture to anyone wearing a zipper. Muslim ice cream shop owners would not be required to serve waffle cones to women. Wiccans even praised the law for giving them permission to marry horses. This legislation is a typical Hoosier end-around in response to the U.S. Supreme Court mandating that Indiana recognize same-sex marriages. Like it or lump it? Well, they're lumping it. And if you're wondering, the word Hoosier back in the 1800s was used to describe a group of yokels 
Meant as an insult, it was taken on by native Indianans as a mocking self-tribute until at long last it lost its negative connotations, which are rebounding. To call the backlash loud is like saying that gravel does not top the list of most requested dessert toppings. Miley Cyrus threatened to cancel concerts, but that's not too big of a deal since she canceled half her dates last year. A groundswell of boycotts is growing, and the NCAA even shook its finger, and when the NCAA assumes the moral high ground, you know you're in trouble. In a Washington Post editorial, Governor Pence blamed Obamacare for the law, which is the go-to Republican excuse. Turns out Obamacare is responsible for a long list of maladies, including the abundance of retina detachment in Angus Steers, the substandard maple syrup crop in Vermont, and blue mold. What this bill really says is, in Indiana, we have the God-given right to be intolerant of people who do not believe in our God-given right to be intolerant. And seriously, who can argue with that? For Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast, I'm Will Durst. Get more of his jolly jaundiced views at willdurst.com or distill them from his tweets at Will Durst. We'll be getting to my chat with David Feldman soon, and that'll be run about 45 minutes or so, which means we better get lubricated first. Boozing with Bill. Bill. <laughs> wow. <coughs> oh, sorry, Mark. I'm sorry. Are you okay? I'll be all right. All I'll right. be all right. All right. Uh, Mark, I have a drink for you. I have a drink for you. I, le- I got this when I was in Italy. Italy. I, I worked in Rome. I was doing English overdubbing okay. on beer commercials for non-American English-speaking people. Okay. So this would play okay. in South Africa. Right. I didn't care. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, wow, that seems all the Americans and all the Americans speaking assholes in Switzerland, where they'd go and count their fucking money. <laughs> anyway, I was living it up. I was living the yeah, good so- life. Sounds like it would be pretty. I was sweet, boffing pretty- a stewardess who looked like Gina fucking Lola Brigida. Wow, this Brigida. Is, yeah, Brigida. Brigida. Yeah, this sounds yes. like a, quite a sweet and gig. She, yes, and she taught me a drink that just was so good. It was very special. It's so good you need a letter from your fucking doctor. Wow. Yes. Well, I would absolutely. love you to see it if you would share that it's with called, the Succotash audience. That it's was... called the Roman Candle. Ah. And it's for those of us who like to burn it at, bl- bl- burn, burn <laughs> it at both ends. Yeah, baby. Yes. That's for sure, man. Now, we're going to make a Roman candle. All right. And here's what you do. First, we're going to get our little drink, our little uh, mixer glass. Mm, yeah. And uh, we're going to go Italian. And we're going to start out with a little amaretto. Oh, yes. Yes, a little amaretto liqueur. I uh, I recall an evening of amaretto... Uh, drinking that I was on once years and years ago. That, really, I didn't uh, know that you were I, much like, of a drinking. I'd like man. to say I'd never forget, but I forgot. You forgot. <laughs> it was better that way. So then uh, we're going. But we go around the corner, across the border, and we're going to put in a little tequila as oh, well. Because okay. you, what's the bite? The bite. Okay. So we're going to put mm-hmm. some of the tequila in there. So we've got 
a jigger of a shot of amaretto and a shot of tequila and uh oh, well, and then a shot of southern comfort oh okay yeah but it's for it's for two people you know you're drinking sure. for, for many people sure sure you know you share it you share the wealth okay so that's in there too you know I, one thing that's always confused me mark is i never quite understood bitters i mean they say a dash of bitters yeah i mean have you ever really tried a bitter no, no, Neither no. have I. I mean, I've had it in things, yes, but I've never tried bitters as a as a solo oh, shot. No, I'm, exactly. Yes. Yes. So I've got uh, orange bitters, and I want you to. Just, we're going to try some bitters. Okay. Just go ahead and put it on our fingertips. All right. Here we go. Like here we go. Uh, try it here. Okay. This is uh, not just any bitters. It's Fee Brothers huh. West Indian orange bitters. Is it better? I don't know. I got to try a little more. It, it, it didn't work putting it on my fingertip. Huh. I will put a dash of bitters in this, this little spoon here. Okay. I see what I... Huh. It tastes like... It tastes like uh, uh, orange juice and battery acid. <laughs> okay. Would you like to try some? I, I, I used my fetid yes, bar rag to, to yes, dry that out. Yes, of course. In for a penny, in for a pound. That's though. what I like about you. You're Absolutely. very adventurous. Absolutely. We should be on uh, yeah, the man. Discovery Channel. It tastes like the inside of an orange sweat sock. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> you should be in comedy. You're very uh, funny. Okay, uh, so we're, we're going to put a dash of bitters right. in there. And uh, the orange bitters. But yes. then also it has Angosturo bitters. We're going to try this too. Okay. We're going to try this bitter. All right. Okay. Let's try this, this is one. the most bitter of the bitters, the bitter, I think. Bitter. Oh, Lord. <laughs> God Christ. It's Oh, man, you, you got to try yeah, some bring it, bring it on. Bring it on. Bring it on. Try some of that. Yeah, smell this, smell this milk. Is it sour? Oh, yeah, bring it. Bring it on. Yeah, yeah. I want you to try some of this oh, yeah. stuff. Come this on, is good. Bring it yeah. on. Go, on. go I'm for it. There, slurp it up, son. Yeah. Oh, it's not Yow. good. So we just got to put not Ooh. too much in there. Man. So this is good. Now, oh, oh, yes. Oh, well, uh, it's, it's, this is... um. Uh, here we go. Oh, special glasses. Special glasses, yes. yes, yes. So this is the glass for the Roman candle. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what we need is, is since it's it's made to when after you've burned the candle at both ends. Yes. What you need to do is you need to go to sleep. Of course. So this is what you do. So you have warm milk. Now, I've already uh, pre-warmed the milk. I'm not going to so, ask how. You no, know, I've warmed. It's, <laughs> I warmed it good. I warmed it the right way. Yeah, we're gonna pour the, the the warm milk inside here in in the, the drinks okay, in the empty into the empty glasses. We're yes. going to pour this. Okay, that's good. Now, yes, I feel like I'm gonna get ready to go to bed. Absolutely. Nice. And so now we're going to take all this goo, the 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 um the amaretto and the tequila and the southern comfort and the bitters, both orange and agostino, yes. and we're going to just shake it up. Is that good? Can I stop now? I think so. Good. Okay. So now it's all mixed up. Let's see what happened there. Yes, now. Oh, you worked up a sweat with that one, huh? Now we're going to pour it in. It's there. There we go. There. Okay. Oh, I, I, yeah. Now, here's the thing. When you really want it to work, yes. you take what we have here. It's uh, some people call it uh, diazepam, but I like to call it Valium. Wow! So you take uh, I have this ten milligram of Valium. Okay. 
and um, I guess we're not going anywhere after this one. No, we're not. No. <laughs> And and so what we really need to do is we don't want the whole thing. No, no, that would no. be that would be, be overkill. Very bad. We don't want to do very, that. Very no, bad. no, no. So we're going to chop up mm -hmm. the little pink tab, <laughs> and and we're just going to float it on top. Okay. Okay. So it's really just an accent. Yeah, it's just it's an accent, but you need a prescription. You must have a note. From your doctor, is, if you're going to drink this shit. Okay? Is there an over-the-counter substitute for no, those who don't have? No, no, no. So the drink's incomplete without Valium. The, the Valium. You can do it without the Valium, but then you don't need the doctor's note. You know? Right, right. Okay, so here you are, and, and, and this is the Roman candle. The Roman candle is, you warm the milk, not too much. You don't want it to boil over. Shot of tequila, shot of amaretto, shot of comfort, some bitters, and you stir it all up, and then you float a little bit of that old uh, Valium on the top, oh, and then you've here got... Here we go. Bottoms up. Bottoms up. up yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the nectar of the gods. I want to tell you right mm. now. Oh, yes. I, that could put me out It could easily. put me out very easily. It's the warm milk, really. It's not the alcohol. Yeah. It's the no, warm no. milk. <laughs> alcohol is just medicinal. But yeah, the, just, yes. the warm milk is... Yes. Well, that's that's mm. how we make it here, and and that's that's what I got from that woman who what was her name. Is that the only thing you got from her? Oh, I got a case of the crabs. I saw it the poor vault yeah. out there. It's just <laughs> awful. What was her name? I can't even remember her name, but oh my goodness, in high heels, mm. she would just sort of walk around in those high heels, and she used to make me put them on once in a while. <laughs> wow, Rome sounds kind of like was, that uh, guy. That sportscaster, that's the hairpiece. Oh, um, yeah. That guy. Yeah. Okay. Well, congratulations, Bill. Who's <laughs> in with Bill? You can find the recipe for the Roman candle up on our home site at SuccotashShow.com. Now, Succotash, our network, and its affiliates are not responsible for what might happen were you to reproduce and consume Bill's concoction. All right, time to get into our interview with David Feldman. I've known David since he first got into doing stand-up comedy in San Francisco back in the mid-1980s. And I've been meaning to get him on the show for some time, but he's mostly been in L.A. while I've mostly been in San Francisco. And our paths haven't crossed all that often. As luck would have it, we were cross-tweeting about something, and one thing led to another, and there we were at either end of a Skype call. The audio quality of the calls is uh, pretty good through most of it for a change, although we did get a little dropout here and there. So apologies for that. Here now is David Feldman, and I will see you just a little bit later. Uh, how are you, sir? I'm great. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. Uh, I think the last time we spoke and laid eyes on each other, we were uh, at a party at Kelly Carlin's house, if memory serves. Yes, yes. And that was a few years ago. Right. So you're doing, you're, interview, you're interviewing me for your show. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. As far, so as, I, as, far as I know. Okay. <laughs> um, usually it's the other way around. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I'll have to have you on my show uh We'll, we'll we'll talk about that later. As, um, as soon as you run out of legitimate guests, give, well, me, give me a call. I, Although you did you did have bubbles on the other day, so I know. <laughs> By the way, that, that review you wrote, uh, I forgot what a great writer you are. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You uh, 
it's you obviously exercise that muscle. I do. Uh, I do. I, I I regularly review for Split Cider, and uh, then I repurpose that for Huffington Post every. I week. saw that a lot of people contacted me. Okay. Oh, yeah. Good. Uh, what's going on up in Mill Valley? Are you in Mill Valley? Uh, moved recently to Sausalito. Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah, New York. I'm in New York. It's kind of. Uh, I know. I know. Well, let's uh, let's let's talk about that as we get into this. Um, I'm speaking with David Feldman, uh, host of the David Feldman Show, and uh, a gentleman I've known uh, since before we were both born. <laughs> since before the dawn of time. Yeah, uh, I probably gave you some of your first stage time. Officially, well, I re- yeah, I remember. <sighs> You were booking the punchline, and you would come in and audition the comics. I believe you were living in Seattle at the time. Uh, I may no, I you know I was running the comedy underground up there for the Foxes for about two and a half years, uh, and then I came. I went up there in like eighty two, and then I came right. came back uh, in eighty mm, probably around eighty four eighty five. Right, but in 82, because that's when I started, yeah. you would come down from Seattle and watch the new talent and make recommendations to John and Ann Fox. That's how I remember it. Interesting. Uh, it was something like that. I mean, I, I was living in San Francisco and then just went up there literally to run the Comedy Underground. And the female comics all had crushes on you. They did? Yep. God, I should have made, oh, why didn't I make hay while the sun shone? <laughs> I remember auditioning for you in a. You wore a baseball cap. Oh, I was so nervous, and then I would call to get work. And you were very nice and generous. You probably were the first. Uh, let's see. You, did you predate? I don't mean go out with her. But did you predate Lori Kaplan, or did you? Yes. She, yeah. Yeah. You, so, and then you left, and then Lori Kaplan took over. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Lori and I were working there at, with the Foxes about the same time. And then I, actually, when I uh, when I left uh, Fox Productions uh, in the eighties, I actually had trained in um, Jeff Wills, who thought he was going to work for Twentieth Century Fox. <laughs> Did you know that? I didn't. I didn't. Jeff Wills has gone on to Live Nation and really built uh, his own business of live comedy. Oh, he really has. Yeah, I mean theaters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, I've I've uh, had proteges who were who've all all surpassed me at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you wanted to do that though. No, 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 because I I had moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I started going down there part time in 87. Uh, Franklin Ajay and I had sold a screenplay to Universal in 83. And so I I was going to become a writer. I said, this is Mm -hmm. it. And I so I I basically was working part time at Fox Productions and I moved to L.A. and then uh, was kind of going back and forth between there and uh, the branding company I was working for. Uh, doing just freelance stuff. Um, and Bud Friedman actually offered me the job of booking all the improvs when I was in uh, living in L.A., and I turned him down. I said, I just want to write screenplays. Yeah, you got to want to do that in order to do it. Yeah, yeah, and I did, and I ended up selling some screenplays, so that all worked out well. I have a friend who I grew up with, 
and she wants to be an artist. Mm. She says, I'm an artist because she has a life coach who told her <laughs> she's an artist. That's the, that seems to be the new thing now, that everybody's an artist. Yeah, well, because- you know, it's a, it's a new adage, those who can't become life coaches. <laughs> uh, and the 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 audacity to call yourself an artist when you keep asking what other artists earned. She, <laughs> I, I don't consider myself an artist, but she keeps asking me how much I make, how much I make, and I want to say, but I'm not mean. I, you know, if you want to be an artist, you create without ever taking into consideration the money. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and, and, I blame reality television for this, uh, this phenomenon you're talking about. People just want to be stars, and they think being a star means being on television, mm-hmm. and, and, and in, any, in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I didn't, when we were doing stand-up, we had our day jobs, and I guess we all wanted to be Robin or Dana, or at least paid enough to no longer have to do the day job. Right. Yeah. I mean, but I, I, I was because I'm wrestling with like what to say to this person. I just remember being so mentally ill and beaten, and that the stand-up to this day remains my therapy. That I never thought about the. F- the money. I always thought maybe the fame, the recognition, the "I'll show you," that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm just. That's all right. That's all right. Let I, it people, out. Let I, it I, out. I, I occasionally somebody is foolish enough to ask me for advice on stand-up comedy, and like, how do you make it? I said, "Well, if you think I've made it, <laughs> you've really set your sights pretty remarkably low." But. Well, Dana Carvey always says, when somebody asks him, how do you get into stand-up comedy, he says, if you're asking me, <coughs> you're not going to go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just have to do it. <clears throat> it's not, like, only, not only you have to do it, it's you have to do it. Yes, yes, you have to be you, driven. You, ha- you will go anywhere. I'm amazed at guys my age who, uh, how we... I, I did a gig last night. I don't even want to talk about. Uh, but you know, if you have to do it, uh, people find the audience. But I I, re- I always was afraid that the audiences would dry up and disappear. That I wouldn't have. It wasn't the, the money. The that there wouldn't be a place for me to get up and do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I, I think there's a parallel in that podcasting is becoming that. That if you need to, if you need to get your voice out there, if you need to podcast, just do it. I mean, I've been doing Succotash now for it'll be three years in April, and I still don't have any sponsors, and I, you know, I'm shelling out money every month to get this thing out there, and I just I have to do it. Right. It is identical to stand up. Um, and, and there's, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And you just hope, you know, people will be tweeting about your whatnot. And I get, a, I get a lot of great feedback from listeners, which is terrific. Uh, and whether I ever get a sponsor or not is kind of unimportant to me. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it would be great. Don't get me wrong. Um, I have a phony sponsor. Henderson's pants is our, is our sponsor for every Wait episode. a second. 
wait a second. I wear Henderson's pants. Of course They're, you do. Of course you do. You wear, and it's a it's you, a phony company. Yeah, it is. So you're you're wearing the emperor's new pants. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so uh, just, <clears throat> I mean, I've I've talked about your show. We've we've clipped the David Feldman show a number of times on on Suckatash in the past because that's normally what we do. We play clips from other comedy podcasts. And we do interviews. You do the David Feldman show, and and it is sort of because I've been listening to your the David Feldman show or the David Feldman podcast as it originally started out in two thousand nine. I think is when you first hit the pod, yeah. pod waves, and you've had a number of sort of iterations of your show under the aegis of the David Feldman show. It it, it almost. Uh, and maybe you said this at one point, but to me, listening and having been an old radio, a fan of old radio shows, you had kind of a Jack Benny vibe to, mm-hmm. to your show, where you would perform it live, and you had a, a cast of mostly comedians or com- comedian types, and they they sort of played characters that were themselves to a large degree. Yeah, yeah, that was. It has been. Yeah, it's evolved and it's constantly changing. Just because, uh, because you are constrained by money and time, and you have to take jobs, it it's where I am geographically and financially that determines the what the show is. There was a time when I had time and money to put into those big productions, which were just so much fun. They were live shows uh, with writers and uh, really funny. And then it just became too hard to do. Uh, we were, because I had to rent an art gallery and there were, I mean, it was just, it was very complicated and time consuming. I would love to be able to go back and do that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it, although I found that the audience grew when we just talked to one another. Huh. Interesting. Uh, yeah. The, the, there's a. Uh, if you're crunching numbers, we found that the scripted comedy shows, while satisfying and delicious, <laughs> di- uh, were not. Uh, they, they were. Uh, a lot of work for the listeners as well, as opposed to this, where when you're sitting in traffic, you, you just want some company. And it's it's a very sort of intimate re- medium, you know. It's uh, it's people that have you know these these earbuds put in put in their heads, and they're part of our conversation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's one of the things you know. I've uh, I've talked to a couple of um, theater owners in the area here about doing a live talk show because I think. I think um, it's a taste that uh, at least American audiences like, and I don't think they're getting very much of these days on television anymore. You know, everything's so prepackaged and whatnot. Even though there's still a, a you know a good healthy number of late night talk shows, it's all very kind of prefab, pre-interview. Uh, there's no surprises anymore. The old Tonight mm-hmm. Show, you know, George Goble would come out with like, you know, half a heat on and you know, mm-hmm. and it was fun to watch. You didn't know what was going to happen. Now it's all very predictable. Yeah. And I think yeah. people like that idea of just sort of free-ranging conversation. 
They, yeah. Although I think it works surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, in radio and podcasts where people are doing something else and they don't have to pay too close attention or keep their eyes on it. Mm-hmm. I, I think if, you, if you're glued to the television set, I think you want... I, I, I don't know how much patience people would have for something that isn't... Uh, more disciplined. You know, you're probably, I mean, they've been trained over the course of time. Um, And I've noticed that even with podcasts, because, you know, people still will make sure to a large degree that their podcasts come in at 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And it's like this thing that, well, no, this is the way a show is supposed to be. And my show ranges all over the place time-wise. I just, I say, no, this is a complete, this is a different medium. It really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Somebody was asking me what I thought of Tim and Eric. And my son loves Tim and Eric. I love Tim and Eric. And I, he says, well, you watch Tim and Eric with me. And I, 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 and I said, I love ter- Tim and Eric in theory. <laughs> I really love what they're doing. But if I were 30 years younger, I would have the time to wait out these jokes because it's funny. But I just when you get into your fifties, let's go, let's move it. I, you know, time is precious. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, that's funny. Um, so, what are you doing in in New York? Uh, just to bring our listeners up to speed, I'm working on the Jack and Triumph show. It's on Adult Swim. Speaking of Tim and Eric, yeah. at eleven thirty, and it's on eleven thirty Friday nights. It stars Triumph, the insult comic dog. And Jack McBrayer from 30 Rock and a, a woman named June Squibb. She was nominated for an Oscar last year for Nebraska. Great movie, great actress. It's a great sitcom. It, it, it's been on for a couple of weeks and I highly recommend it. Uh, I, try- I have, I, yeah, I haven't had a chance to catch it yet, but uh, I've seen the promos and I've been hearing good things about it. So I will definitely be uh, tuning in this week. And uh, are you enjoying working on it? Well, it's Robert Smigel. That's good. Who is, you know, Robert Smigel. Yeah. Uh, and it's Triumph the Insult Comic <laughs> Dog, who I laugh at all the time. You know, and Jack McBrayer. Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, It's he's pretty funny. It's a pretty funny dog it's a puppet <laughs> it's a puppet who insult if you haven't seen it he's been on conan for i guess 20 years it's a hand puppet <laughs> First of all, i like the idea that you didn't explain what tim and eric is but you're explaining triumph who's been around for like 20 years <laughs> yeah I, I guess most people i, I don't know there we live in such a fractured culture that some people have never seen triumph but if you've never seen triumph watch him on youtube it's pretty funny um and have you you've lived in new york off and on right i mean because you've worked on various shows and whatnot but your home is really kind of los angeles right my heart is in tony bennett no my heart is in uh san francisco but yeah i grew i grew up in the new york tri-state area moved to san francisco to really specifically do stand-up comedy and then uh, moved to Los Angeles to write for television. But right. yeah, New York, New York is 
another planet. It's <laughs> it, it is it's, it really is. New York City is uh, pretty pretty amazing, and not always in a good way. Usually in a ba- usually in a bad way. <laughs> in a bad way, and I do. I think it's what heroin is probably like, or LSD. Most of the time, heroin and LSD, I suspect, are not positive experiences. I would suspect most people have bad LSD trips, but they keep coming back for more because they, they're chasing the good that, ones. One, that one high that they had. <laughs> and I think that's what New York is. I, I think there, people have like one great New York experience each month that make it worthwhile, and the rest of their time is hell. <laughs> That's New York. So you you started out in in doing stand. Did you do any stand up in New York before you headed to San Francisco? Yes, I started at Dangerfields, and the skies opened up. I I I wish everybody could find that moment where they realized why they were put on this earth. And uh, you know, I did stand up at Dangerfields. I knew I had to do it. And I went, oh, my God, this is, I'm healed. This is fantastic. And I knew because I grew up in New York and I had so many friends that I couldn't uh, be bad without my friends showing up. I just needed a place to to hone the craft. And I knew it. I, I knew I was in my, you know, I was 22. And I thought, God, this is, I just need to recreate myself and and. San Francisco at the time, I don't think there was another city in America where you were so welcomed as a stand-up. Yeah, and you could do uh, your could could be anything in San Francisco, uh, as opposed to uh, as, just to use as an example, L.A. or New York, where in L.A. generally you're trying to get on stage for you know to get on television or whatnot. So you've got to kind of do this industry. Uh, uh, steeped act, right? So you know you're you're coming across showcasing yourself very in a very particular fashion. Yeah, I mean, you want to. The benefit to San Francisco at the time was you could be bad, but you would get better, and nobody would remember you for being bad. Except, <laughs> you, you know, in other words, a lot of guys who started in New York and L.A people who moved your career ahead would remember you one way. Like your parents will always remember that they changed your diaper. <laughs> so in, in, if you're starting out in L.A. and New York, the guy who books Letterman or The Tonight Show will have seen you prematurely, get it in his head that you're not good, and no matter how much you improve, he's still going to remember the time you crapped your pants and he had to change you. So in San Francisco, you could just get better. And then when you were ready, you would move to Los Angeles and you people go, oh, my God, where'd you come from? Right. Yeah. The overnight success. or the, <clears throat> Right. The, yeah. The flavor of the month. Yeah. Whichever uh, that was. Although New York and L.A. have changed uh, since I started. How so? Uh, well, uh, when I started, uh, L.A. was 
the landmass was connected <laughs> to it was, the large. It was all orange orchards and. Uh, <laughs> it was part of Oceana, a larger tectonic plate. But I, I, there were there were more. What what L.A. L.A. has encouraged new acts. There are a lot more smaller rooms now, and same thing with New York, where you can go and hone your craft. I I, I think more so than San Francisco. I think there are fewer clubs to get good at in San Francisco. There's certainly, yeah, in terms of real comedy club, there's a lot of showcase, or not showcases, but I'll call them open mics, uh, that are really started by comics that are frustrated they couldn't get stage time. So there's these one-nighters all over town, all started by comics that just want to get on stage. So they start, they find some little club or cafe or gas station and say, hey, do you want to do comedy one night a week? Yeah, I had a problem with, you know, headlining the punchline in San Francisco, comics would come by and say, can I do a guest set? And I remember saying to guys starting out, well, you know, it's Friday night. And if you do a guest set, that's going to cut into my time. Uh, and I know you need stage time, but you got to do what we did when we were starting out and, and find the small little rooms to to, right. to do yeah i mean that's comedy really started in boston and san francisco when guys like goldthwaite and barry crimmins had to do it so badly they walked into a, a bar and said this will work we could do stand up yeah. here yeah exactly that's right you needed that place where you had permission to be bad like you said Right, yeah, which the Holy City Zoo really was back in back in the day, right? I mean, it was a, it was the clubhouse, and we just have you know people, just regular people, happen to be able to get in there. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it, it was really a, the place for comics to hang out and you know just kind of be bad for each other. And as long as you were drunk, it was fine or high. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's where uh, it's where you were able to be Feldo the Clown. Yeah, brief I just, you know what, I somebody just sent me, Steve Kravitz just sent me a photograph. I saw of, that, it was on, was it on Facebook, I think? It was you and yeah. Bob, Bob Rubin? Uh, no, it's me and Steve Kravitz. I'm going to, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. I should uh, put that up. Yeah, it's funny. <clears throat> um, yeah, you know, I, I you had Larry Bubbles Brown on your show a couple of weeks ago, uh, and uh We've we've had him as a guest here on Succotash. Uh, it's over. It's a butter. Butter. It's over. <laughs> I figured you'd appreciate the fact I tagged my review with that. Yeah, and the dead hooker jokes, <laughs> of course. But uh, it was funny because uh, you know he was talking about the three still standing documentary at the end of the interview, which I ended up uh, helping out a little bit on. Um, how is it? I haven't seen it. It's really, I thought it was really well put together. It's a very sort of touching little remembrance and tribute of both the comedy scene and the guy's acts and things like that. And what I, I kind of attribute its success to as a film to the fact that it was put together by people that weren't in the comedy business. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these documentaries that get made are being made by people that either were or still are comics. And that's all well and good. But it gets, to me, it gets a little too inside baseball. I think for regular people to kind of pierce the veil more and the filmmakers were people that were just, they really enjoyed being fans of comedy. 
Right. Um, and sort of... Go ahead. Am I in that? Uh, you are mentioned in it, and you were actually, uh, I don't know if you'll feel good or bad about this, but you were going to be sort of the the fourth musketeer in the movie when they were originally thinking about how to how to put it together. You were going to be the guy who got away, the guy who got to Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Um, and when, you know, it's, it's a documentary, so they have to kind of shape the story as they go. And mm-hmm. they just... They realized they just really wanted to focus on Will and Johnny and Larry for the piece. Um, but, uh, but then they interview big name celebrities, right? Yeah, that, I think it was. I think it was some of the last footage that was filmed of, of Robin. Right. Um, Dana Carvey's in it. Rob Schneider, uh, Paula Poundstone. Um, yeah, so they've got some drop in stuff about that, but it's really kind of talking about the industry back in the. 80s, you know, how San Francisco was this great town for comedy. And then when the comedy boom fell apart in the early 90s, what did these guys end up doing and what are they doing now? Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that comedy came back. Uh, I'm, I'm an, and I think it came back for white people specifically. I, I, <laughs> they're, they're the, it never went away. It got bigger in the black community. Yeah. The, the comics got really bigger and were able to sell out theaters. I was surprised while I was, you know, taking jobs writing for television. I assumed that the club scene was dead forever. Stu- yeah, it, it didn't die. A lot of guys figured out how to cultivate audiences even before social media this you know before 2007 2006 that's when facebook and twitter yeah became integral to stand up guys like pat oswald and maria bamford found their audiences uh, and there i was i'm kind of surprised well you know i think comedy will always find a way i i'm a belief that there is these these sort of 20 year sort of waves. And I think, I think George Carlin was the Pat Oswald of his day. You know, he went from being a very straight button down standup to a guy who kind of, you know, bridged the gap to the next wave of comedy between the fifties and sixties into kind of the end of the seventies, early eighties. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, and think, it, I, I, th- I think what happened was once comedy became less about jokes and more about the person telling the jokes or the person on stage. Once it became very personal, mm-hmm. I'm saying this is a compliment. Anybody could do it. So, because the audiences became more interested in the human being and not the material. So that way it, 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 uh, it, there was there I think became a bigger audience. I mean you watch Aziz and Sari selling out Madison Square Garden. Now I, as a comedy writer, don't get him. Mm-hmm. I, I go, well that I, you know, I'm not laughing at the, the jokes or the math because I he's not telling jokes. People who like Aziz Ansari like him. Yes. Like they like what he's saying. And that's a new, I think, more of a new thing. Uh, and I think, I, I think it it's part of what translated into why podcasting is working. Because mm-hmm. I mean, the 
the there, yeah, there's there's people that are that are comics. There are people that are celebrities that are doing podcasts. But by and large, the the universe of podcasts is being peopled by you know some some folks in Ohio, people in Georgia, who are sitting or they might be talking to the mic by themselves. They might be four guys sitting around. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these are shows that are, that have listeners. Uh, and I think it's for the exact same reason you're talking about. It's this desire to just hear what this person has to say, and I I enjoy it. I share I share their feelings. I they they sound like me, you mm-hmm. know, or whatever the reaction is. Yeah. So I think comedy has sort of split off and become this you know sort of growth medium for podcasting to some degree. I mean, certainly it's not all comedy podcasts out there, but I think it's it led the way. Yeah. And and it coincided, I guess, with the decline or demise of radio. Yes, very much so. Yeah, which again became this sort of prepackaged. Uh, you know, everything sounded exactly the same. A lot of the stations were all owned by the same company in any town, um, and people wanted something that wasn't quite as sanitized. You know, something that they that, that touched them, maybe. Yeah, I mean the hot, you know, like the Alex Bennett show in the '90s mm-hmm. in San Francisco was like that, just freewheeling. You didn't have to, li- you know, Howard Stern. Uh, you don't have to listen intently. Mm-hmm. It, it could go on in the background. People were having a good time, laughing, fooling around. Uh, but uh, you know, you often found yourself. You were supposed to go into the office, but you could be in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, you wanted to hear the the rest of the interview or whatever the yeah. bit was. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes people will write to me and say, you know, I listen to your show and I find myself in the parking lot, not going to work, waiting for it to end. I don't want to miss it. And I write back, you know, this is a podcast. <laughs> yeah, you it's not t- live. Yeah, you, you can, can you can turn it off and turn it on later. So you really don't love me as much as you hate your job. <laughs> and you're a really bad, you should, you're a pretty bad employee if yeah. you haven't figured that out. Yeah. Where do you work? I want to write your boss. Yeah. Um, when you moved to, to L.A., was it to pursue writing originally or was it to be a, move your stand-up into a, a different medium? I think, I, not I think, I knew that I had hit the wall with my stand-up. There was a limit. I'd been doing it for 12 years, and I kind of knew that this, I found my voice, and I thought, I'm not going to be able to support my wife and kids saying and doing the things on stage that uh, I was doing. Because I, you know, I, ha- I have this act that is about pushing the audience away and then winning them back. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, so that, you know, it, it's the kind of act that is fun to do and it's fun for the audience when they get it. But I, it got serious with kids. So I got offered, Tom Arnold saw me one night at mm. the improv and, and he just hired Norm MacDonald and then he hired me to write on sitcoms. And so I took the job on Roseanne, quickly got fired, but I liked the writing room. I liked the collegial atmosphere of sitting around with other white men. (laughs) And I thought, this is great. 
It's like looking in the mirror. It's just a bunch of white men. Uh, and that hasn't changed much. It's, uh, uh, so I'm joking about the white men. It's getting, is it getting better? I don't know. There, there, there's still, it's still white men with, uh, yeah, it's, but did the pr- did pretty the, bad about it's it's pretty bad about the, the yeah. white men issue. It's pretty bad. Did the experience of the writers' room did it sort of allow you to keep exercising the same muscles you're using doing your comedy to some extent? Well, it's different because I never had like Robin's Act or Stephen Pearl or Warren Thomas or Greg Proops or Tom Kenny or Jeremy Kramer. Or, you know, guys who were on stage who were just incredibly quick. Yeah. I, I was very, I had, before I became a, a TV writer, I had a very constipated act where it's like, <laughs> I'm going to write this joke and then I'm going to tell it and I'll put this joke next to this joke and I will build an act that will be like a tank that can go anywhere, <laughs> which I did. I built this tank of an act that, that would could go anywhere, but it wasn't based on wit. Or, or being quick. And then when I got into television writing, you're sitting around a table and you have to be fast on your feet, even though you're seated. Yes. Uh, so, so that, uh, that, that developed that particular facility Did that in retrospect, because you still do stand up. did that in, in exchange or, or in conjunction with doing stand up, did it inform your stand up act at all? Did you become faster on stage? I, I think so. I think I became obsessed with wit and being able to, you, you wouldn't know it by this interview, but I, it, for me, this is first thing in the morning. So I'm a little, I haven't had my pound of coffee yet, but you know, Pat, you know, Paula Poundstone is just unbelievably witty and she would bring that to the stage by talking to the audience. And yeah, I, I became more interested in talking to the audience uh, the stand-up also got better because once I became a TV writer, for some reason it got easier for me to get booked as a comedian on television. Yeah. So that, uh, not that you know, uh, I became a household name by you know, but um, yeah, I, I think there's the reality of. You know, the I hate to say bourgeois, but you know, the, you we have if you're going to get married and and have kids, and you want to be an artist, uh, that's fine. But you can't. You have to give up something. Yeah, because you, know, you, yeah, you, you got to support your wife and kids. You exactly. Know? Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of standups found themselves in that in that space uh, eventually, which is why a lot of guys end up getting out of the business because they couldn't make it pay. You know, and you uh, you found yourself uh, moving into this this writing capacity. Um, yeah, it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a traveling comedian. That's that I couldn't think of anything better. Yeah. I was just interviewing Greg Proops for my show and he lives the life that I wanted, which is traveling around the world, reading all the time 
and then getting up, you know, working an hour, getting up on stage for an hour each night. And he does this podcast. So it's, you know, this total expression of himself. Uh, problem for me is I'm not as talented as Greg Proops. <laughs> well, that's, that isn't true. It's just, you're, uh, no, you're, no, 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 come on. Your talents lie in a different area. That's all. Uh, sucking up to bosses. Sure. Why not? <laughs> but no, uh, no, I mean, you, no, but you've, you know, you're an award-winning comedy writer. Yeah. But you know, you have to, uh, recognize your limitations and, uh, there are guys who are really great at standup. I, I knew after 12 years of doing it that there was, was a, I felt at, at 12, I was pretty great, but not palatable enough to pay the bills. No, I understand. I mean, listening to Greg Proops' podcast is one of those sort of enviable things where he's just, you know, on stage in front of a live audience, just talking for an hour, just completely with nothing. I mean, there's no script, there's nothing. And you just go... I look at that and I go, I wish I could do my podcast that way. You know, I have to, I'm, I'm getting clips from comedy podcasts and I, I write out a script for what I'm doing. And it's like, you're right. It's, you look at that and you go, that would, oh man, I wish that it could be that easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's pretty gifted. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, and it, you know, he was, he was in the improv group that I used to direct at the, the punchline, you know, when I was running the comedy underground or directing the comedy underground group and playing with those guys, and they were all much more experienced at doing improv than I was. And, mm -hmm. you know, when, when the group fault line disbanded, uh, we ended up sort of taking in Greg and Michael McShane as, as orphans. And it was just amazing watching those two guys in particular, although we, you know, we had Debbie Durst, who's one of the you know quickest people around. And, you know, mm -hmm. Robin would drop in occasionally and play with us. And those were the only two guys I knew that could kind of run rings around him, which was just sort of mind boggling to think you're working with right. people that were faster than Robin Williams was. Right. You know, it's good to have a hobby. And I, and I think that some people do stand up as a hobby. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's fine. Uh, you know, and and then there's some people who do it for to make a living. Uh, it wasn't a hobby for me. It was the kind of thing where I was living month to month, and you know, uh, and that gets exhausting after a while. And and, I'm, and you can't get sympathy from anybody. You can't say <laughs> no, because no. most most people are don't do what they love. They do things for money so that they can then have a vacation or drive a nice car. Most comics, or all the comics I knew, didn't drive nice cars. We didn't take vacations. Everything, any extra money we had went into buying, you know, a new tire, a new... Yeah. It's everything. When you do, when you do stand-up, everything is about the stand-up. Um, and the idea of a, taking a week off to go to Hawaii never enters your mind. Now I'll play Hawaii. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. If I can turn it into a gig. 
Alcohol. Yeah, but yeah. but to sit for a week on the beach, uh, forget it. Yeah, that that's just not well. When when you bring other people into your life, you know, when you have a wife and kids, they they want, and rightfully so, they want a, a normal person's life. Which <laughs> yeah, there was never a kid that that I know that uh, really aspired to be a comedian's child. <laughs> yeah. That, be, that being said, uh, I took my writing jobs and raised a family. We never really went on vacations. I think most most of our vacations were traveling to see the grandparents. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't think we ever really. I never went to Hawaii or to, you know did that kind of thing. That just. I w- I wish we did. Or camping. Well, basically, I was a lousy father. That's what I think I'm saying. <laughs> Um, how did how did what you do translate into getting work writing for award shows, which seems like a very sort of niche uh, part of the profession? Yeah, the award there, there are professional award show writers. You know, Bruce Valanche, David uh, uh, Boone. Uh, um, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys. What usually happens is you're doing like Conan hired me to write on the Emmys when he was hosting uh, or Steve Martin would bring me in, but th- these were one shot right. things. And then, so they have their camp. Oh, I see. So there, there's a staff, there's staff writers. And then the guys who are hosting, they go, well, I got my guy or my guy, right. my gang. I want to bring with me. Right. They don't trust the journeyman award show writers because they they tend to in their mind they tend to be uh, and that's not true but it's understandable that they would think that you know uh, like everybody else so they want to bring in a fresh perspective so that's how you get on uh, it's tempting when you work on an award show to think oh okay this is going to open up new work for me no you have to nurture the relationship with uh, the people who produce all those award shows. And that's a whole other game, yeah. you know, you, you know, and, and I don't personally, I rather nurture my relationships with other funny people and not the people who produce award shows tend to be. Right. So how's, what's, what's the history with somebody like a Steve Martin where he goes, I want you to come, you know, come in here and help me with this. Uh, well, I, I, you know, write a little with him, you know, you get brought in to work on little things and, um, uh, that's how that, mm-hmm. that, that would happen. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the award show and the award shows are kind of, uh, God, there are a lot of award shows. <laughs> there, are, there are, yeah. there are. Um, has has doing the podcast opened any doors for you, or is it just sort of an outlet for you? I I, I don't know. I, I guess it has. It's an outlet, I, and it's kept me out there. Uh, has it opened doors? It's opened doors creatively, and it's opened doors in, in finding uh, new audience a new audience for what I do. Uh, I think you can 
not that I sell tickets, but when I'm doing stand-up and I mention uh, a club date, people actually come out to see you from the from the podcast. It's a pretty powerful uh, medium in terms. Of, uh, as for the other great thing is nobody in Hollywood really listens to them. <laughs> they still they don't even know they exist in Hollywood. Well, they only know the most popular ones. They're only interested in, you know, they go to iTunes and see what's in the top 10. Yes. And then they pay attention to, to that. Uh, so you're, it allows you to be part of some kind of underground scene uh, and say whatever you want without having to worry about, uh, you know, destroying your yeah. your chances of of working have you had a chance to because you have uh you know a number of guests that show up on your show you you know you're doing very much you know a talk show uh have you been Mm -hmm. able to meet people that you've wanted to meet through that medium or most of the guests yeah 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 like ralph nader uh did my show and then we ended up doing like a radio we we, have a radio show now with ralph nader he's my hero so yeah i mean uh you get to work with uh, you can reach out to some of your heroes and talk with them. And yeah, that's the great thing about it is you get to meet some of your, you know, Robin did my show. That's right. So, that's yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I'm unfortunately running out of time for today and I've barely scratched the surface. I hope you will, uh, you'll return as a guest. Yeah, I would love that. I would. I, I'm it's, uh, Early in the morning, I'm always amazed at these morning shows. How people are able to, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, having done radio for a number of years in my younger days, it was you know, I, and I used to do a midnight to six shift, and you just change your lifestyle to match it. So you go, how do these people have this kind of energy in the morning? Well, they go to bed at five o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, so it's a different. Uh, you live life like a vampire when you do an overnight show. Um. But I wanted to, because you had Larry on recently, it reminded me, and I didn't know if you guys would get to this story or not, but it was uh, one of the competitions. <laughs> was, I don't know why I'm bringing it up. Just it always makes me laugh when I think about it. But I was, you know, helping the Foxes, as always, produce the competition. I was the official timer and scorekeeper for a while and all that. But we were out in, I believe it was Tommy T's in Concord. <laughs> and you were going to go out and you were kind of panicked because you didn't know how to open your set. <laughs> and Larry and I were some backstage or side stage or whatever the layout was out there. And you, you were going, I don't know how to open this. And I think Larry came up with this thing. He said, open with the line, doesn't all, don't you think all music sucks? Oh, I, yeah, that was my, yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was Stephen Pearl. Oh, it was, was it? Stephen okay. Per- yeah. Because I know Stephen- Larry was there. And it was... Uh, it was at the it was at it was at the punchline and was it the punchline? I the, swear it was in in Concord. I swear it was in Concord no, when this uh, No, no, I, I remember it vividly because I just <laughs> yeah. completely. It was yeah. just a disaster. I and and the audience goes, "No, there's some good music," and I couldn't remember where I where my <laughs> lines were next. Yeah. And I, five minutes of just and the thing with the competition in San Francisco is you have to get the encore point. So you would say, thank you. Good night. Then you'd step off stage. Yeah. And then the audience would applaud and applaud. And then you'd step back up and get your encore. 
And I'm standing there, and this woman says, keep walking, asshole. You ain't getting it. <laughs> You're not getting your encore point. So that became like a, a, a catchphrase for a couple of years. Keep walking, oh, asshole. asshole. You ain't getting it. Uh, uh, anyway, I, I didn't mean to, to end on a on, on a note like that, but it just it's one of those memories. And obviously, from my recollection of it, I don't even have a clear recollection of it, but I still remember that moment yeah. of what should I open with? And then you had nothing to follow <laughs> the line with. So. Yes, just one in a long history of bad career decisions. Oh, um, so let's let's uh, let's end on a high note talking about uh, the show you're working on again is um, on uh, Adult Swim. Friday nights, 1130, and it's really funny. You can't tell by me this morning, but I promise you it's it's a really funny show. It's, it really is. I will. Um, you know what? I may even try and grab a little bit of audio from it just to uh, maybe tag our interview Good. with. So right. people can hear that. And, David, I look forward to uh, speaking with you again uh, hopefully soon. And uh, maybe when you get back out to the West Coast, uh, we'll be able to actually uh, run, run into each other again. That would be right. great. I would love that. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, David. Have a great day. Okay. Talk to you soon. Kyle, what the heck were you doing? It's called getting even. Like if you cut off God's chin. You follow? You pillow-humping turd muncher. Okay. Everybody settle down. I'm sure Triumph feels terrible for intentionally ruining your meeting. Well, screw that. From now on, if you're going to live here, you're going to stay in the doghouse. The doghouse? As you can see, I'm very surprised by this. And concerned. Ah, <laughs> uh, cheer up, buddy. Uh, look, you got a little poker table. Uh, and where do you want me to put your choke collar? Who cares? No one's ever gotten laid in a doghouse. Why do you think Scooby-Doo and Shaggy never consummated their relationship? <laughs> hey, why don't you just buy June an apology gift? What? Me apologize to her? And sacrifice my dignity? Wait, uh, where's my George Foreman f pillow? Uh, uh, <laughs> Boy, uh, I sure likes endorsing things. Yes. <laughs> well, please, Triumph, just apologize. Well, you could even fake it, like Gwyneth Paltrow expressing empathy for another human being. <laughs> no, this is my home now. If you want to watch my sweet little punim at night, you'll have to watch one of these. Watching our old show won't be the same as being with you. This tape doesn't smell like tobacco and cat semen. Have you actually smelled it? What do you know? It does. <laughs> so catch David on the David Feldman Show at davidfeldmanshow.com. Also be sure to catch the Triumph and Jack show on Adult Swim. We'll be back with our second burst of Durst right after this important word from our sponsor. Trusted friends, are you part of the 99%? With tax season just around the corner, there's no better time to hitch up your britches and occupy a pair of Henderson's accountant's pants. 
created by Henderson's Pants CFO Samuel Grifter to keep track of the company's then meager finances right after the stock market crash of 1929, these trousers have a series of interlocking rear pockets made for storing and sorting receipts, invoices, and financial records of every kind. Perfect for day-to-day purchases, as well as those one-time big-ticket items. Just pop the paperwork in the patented paper pusher in the back of every pair of Henderson's accountant's pants, and it is tucked away in the correct pocket every time. And these pants aren't just for keeping receipts in your seat. While you're taking care of business in the back, our deep pockets in the front are roomy enough to move all your money out of those giant banks and keep that folding green close to home. While there's no accounting for taste, you'll be cooking the books in style with your Henderson's accountant's pants. These trousers may be expensive, but even if you end up breaking the bank to buy a pair, they're made to tighten your belt automatically. And when tax time rolls around, there are no more forms to fill out. Just drop trow and send your Henderson's accountant's pants to the IRS. From now on, instead of giving Uncle Sam the shirt off your back, you can give him the pants right off your ass. Originally designed for Black Friday, Bernie Madoff, and national bankers who have trouble keeping their pants on, Henderson's accountant's pants are available wherever the 1% are making a mockery of capitalism. That's Henderson's, makers of fine trousers and pantaloons since 1783. And now back to Sockatash. Hey guys, Will Durst here to say that life is too complicated. Sometimes we overthink stuff. What America needs right now are a few simple common sense solutions. And along those lines, we here at Dursco have a couple of modest suggestions. The California drought. Now, it's estimated that the Golden State has over 1,100 golf courses. How hard would it be to replace all the fairways with green-colored cement? Quick and easy way to save thousands of gallons of water a day. Also, on the plus side, golfers get true bounces, double distance on drives, and that means that scores would plummet while self-esteem skyrockets. It's a win-win. The homeless problem. Give all the homeless free bus tickets to New Orleans. They'd fit right in with all those fish fans who never left after the band's Jazz Fest appearance last year. Gay marriage bakeries. All gay wedding planners in states that discriminate should order double wedding cakes with two grooms and two brides on top. And then, when the magic moment arrives, just toss the offending genders away. Or eat them. Keeping Iran from getting the nuclear bomb. What you do is you give Israel a map to all the Iranian nuclear production sites. Oh, wait, they probably already have them. Never mind. Lying politicians. Every time a politician is caught lying, they should be legally bound to participate in aversion therapy by watching tapes of Brian Williams on Letterman. Declining voter turnout. Free pizzas, but only one to a customer, even in Chicago. Slowing economic growth. We convinced Starbucks to increase the caffeine content of their drinks by at least 10%. People will stay up longer, prompting a corresponding leap in consumer purchasing. Racism is a tough one. But once a year, each registered voter receives a one-night stay in a hotel with all expenses paid. And they can hook up with members of the opposite sex without any legal ramifications. And the deal is, no lights. Guaranteed, within three generations, the whole country will be the same exact color. 
No need to thank us. We're only here to help. For Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast, I'm Will Durst. Will Durst has been seen around the San Francisco environs, lurking with both a one-man show and as part of the Three Still Standing documentary. Plus, he's still doing stand-up in clubs, not just in the San Francisco Bay Area, but all over the place. If you'd ever like to reach out to Will through this show, feel free to write him at Durst, D-U-R-S-T, at SuccotashShow.com. I'll make sure the, uh, the note gets through to him. How about that? Okay, before we go, it's time for a peek into the Tweet Sack. Hello, Tweety. Oh, we got some actual emails in the old Tweet Sack this past week. That's right, emails, the old-fashioned kind that show up in your inbox and everything. Here's the first one. Hello, I was referred to you by Bradford Evans. Hmm. Oh, Bradford was a former editor over at SplitSider.com that was in charge of us review monkeys on This Week in Comedy podcast. He left, uh, it's about a year ago now. Um, I was referred to you by Bradford Evans about the possibility of you doing a review for, of my podcast, Strong Opinions. The premise of the podcast is that I invite on two comedians and we discuss our opinions of everyday topics, ranging from belts to milk and everything in between. Some past guests have included stand-ups like Jake Wiseman and tons of UCB performers like Nicole Byer, Drew Tarver, Will Hines, Betsy Sodaro, and Alex Fernie. The podcast can be found at strongopinions.podbean.com. Thank you for your time and consideration. Mary Sesson, host of Strong Opinions. Well, that's cool, Mary. Sounds like this show's cup of tea. I will send our associate producer, Tyson Saner, out post-haste to get a slice of that podcast for our next show. And in the meantime, I will give the show a listen, and maybe we'll get a chance to get it reviewed online at splitsider.com. Here's another letter in the same vein. Dear Mark, I've read your podcast reviews in the Huffington Post, and I would like to bring my podcast to the manner borne by robots to your attention. Here's the pitch. Only stories will feed the beast. A gigantic creature invades 25th century Earth, killing millions. The only thing calming it is stories, stories read to it by the master, the leader of the future Earth. The beast is contained in the manor, a country estate serviced by robots. Still, it's only a matter of time before the terrible monster breaks free. In desperation, the master transports his 21st century ancestor, Bob, an office worker, to the future. Their common DNA allows Bob to stand in for the master, reading stories to the beast, while the master travels back to the 21st century, seeking the beast's origin in hopes of destroying it. Each episode features the serialized story of Bob and the master's adventures, as well as a standalone story to feed the beast. By turns comedic and serious, fully dramatized in lavish soundscapes with a large cast of talented voice actors. To the manner born by robots is a futuristic Shahrazad. For fans of The Twilight Zone, Doctor Who, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Black Mirror. To the manner born by robots is available free on iTunes or via web player on the show's site. Thank you for your time and consideration, Joe Edder. Or Eder. I guess it's Eder. E-D-E-R. Anyway, I've listened to one of the three episodes that are out so far, and I'm really enjoying it. There's a little bit in common with a, a, an old favorite of mine, the Illusionoid podcast, but this is all scripted and not improvised like theirs, and it's got one common through line for the main story. Uh, plus, there are uh, some sort of social commentary, serious things uh, that go on. It's a pretty layered thing, so I would check it out. It's a very interesting use of the podcast medium. I will clip you a taste in upcoming Epi 109, but if you're a sci-fi fan in particular, you might want to hit the pod waves before then. 
We got a note from Fund Anything, the outfit that Adam Carolla had people donating money through for the defense fund to fight that patent troll a couple years ago. I think we were supposed to get a T-shirt or something out of that. Anyway, Carolla ended up settling out of court. I don't know what kind of deal was struck. Did anyone hear the follow-up to that? Love to know what happened. We haven't uh, heard much of that patent troll, though, so maybe they backed off. I don't know. Anyway, here's what the letter we got said. Hello, legal defense backers. Your weekly update begins with a bit of disappointing news. Due to a complication with a piece of machinery at our shipping company, the legal defense shipments have been temporarily halted. Believe us, this is as frustrating to us as it is to you. We genuinely want to get you your items as soon as possible, and we are continuing to work diligently to make sure that happens. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, it goes on to say that things will be moving ahead and more bloody, bloody, blah. All right. Uh, so I don't know. I think I got a T-shirt or something that's coming from them. I can't even remember what my prize level was. But uh, anyway, it'll show up eventually, probably. Huh. As much as Adam Carolla will show up to be on my show. Turns out we have a corrections department. Did not know that. Last episode, I mistakenly said that Davian Dent was involved in a new podcast called The Fiends Show. Well, The Fiends Show kindly retweeted one of our messages and then tagged it with the line, and we are not Davian Dent. Whoops. Now I'm embarrassed to ask who is behind the show, which I can't find online anyway, except they have a Facebook page and a Twitter account. I think it's our old pals Royal and Doodle, but until I know more, I'm shutting up about The Fiend Show. Instead, let's jump into the rundown of those sweet tweeters kind enough to tweet, retweet, favorite, DM, like, follow, or otherwise mention Succotash this past week or so. Comic Roast Podcast, Salty Language Podcast, Monica Homburg, Amish Baby Machine, Utter Toshpod and his new podcast, The World of Mineshaft, Reply All, Jocelyn Olgia, The Kimchi Chronicles, Podcast Horror, Show Me Your Bits, Danny Polishuk, The Blaze, Dan Delgado, The Mike Jordan, Eric Schaefer, Talk Radio X, Comatose Podcast, Emily Morgan, Xpeer 403, Jason Castrich, Colin Gray, Jason Duplessis, Bob Zaney, Barry from Watford, Dr. Norman Trousers, Angelos Epithemio, The Angry Chimp, Galerio Cotavid, The Captain's Pod, Justin Panati, San Diego Sabrina, Celeste Guntilly, Dave Nelson, Tinder Us, Hunter Report, Bill Sweeney, Sal Kalani, Laura Saner, Funny Words for Life, Sheepdog, Jen, Queen of Haiku, Sideshow Network, Hyper Nonsense, The Pod Mafia, Cracklecast, Smock Podcasting, Wrong Foot Podcast, Creek of the Week, We Have Issues, Kickin' the Bobo, Charlie Finnegan, Remarkable People, Richard Sharp, Illusionoid, Hollywood Rock and Wrap Up, Mother Earth, Vinny the FYFC Dog, Shane Elliott, Travis Clark, Comedy News, Sean Parker, Stranger Conversation, Communindi, and Pop Map. Once again, running super long. <laughs> I thought splitting this show into clips and chats at the beginning of the year was going to make it shorter, but it's still just a beautiful, bloated gas bag of a podcast, isn't it? Oh, well. Thanks for hanging through Epi 108 with our special guest, David Feldman. Epi 109 is a Succotash Clips show, and we'll have a visit to the podcast Graveyard with another clip from a podcast that went off the rails some time ago and slipped into the ether never to be heard from again. This show survives strictly on your donations and my wallet. Don't be fooled by Henderson's pants. We've been carrying them since the show started. You can help us out by slapping the donate button up at SuccotashShow.com 
or shopping at Amazon.com by clicking on their banner at the top of our homepage I just mentioned, or grab some garb at our Succotashery, which is, weirdly enough, accessible through SuccotashShow.com, too. See you next time, and as always, thanks for passing the Succotash. You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at MA at SuccotashShow.com or call into the Suckatash hotline at our non-toll-free call number 818-921-7212 That number again is 818-921-7212 Suckatash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotash. Goodbye.